production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Thursday, December 15th. I'm Dan Malthrop. I'm the chief executive here at the City Club, and it is my pleasure to introduce our forum today. It's part of the City Club's Health Equity Series, which we present in partnership and with support from the St. Luke's Foundation. Today, we return to a topic that we've spoken of in years past with authors such as Anand Girdardis and Edgar Villanueva, how to make philanthropy work more equitably. This is part of our health equity series because, because it's when philanthropy gets involved to counteract systems and disrupt the status quo that communities in need can indeed become more healthy. Philanthropy doesn't always do this, if we're honest. Very often, philanthropic organizations can unintentionally reinforce existing systems. But as these auth those authors I mentioned and our guests today remind us, the way it's been doesn't have to be the way it will be. It's not just that we have the power to rethink philanthropy, it's our obligation. So let me tell you a little bit about our guest today. Marcus F. Walton is the president and CEO of Grantmakers for Effective Organizations, which is based in Washington, D.C. GEO, as it's known, is a community of more than 6,000 grantmakers across the globe. Since 1997, they've been committed to transforming philanthropic culture and practice by connecting members to resources and relationships that they need to support thriving nonprofits and communities. Prior to joining GEO, Marcus worked as Director of Racial Equity Initiatives at Borealis Philanthropy, as Vice President and COO for the Association of Black Foundation Executives. Marcus is also a local, he's our guy. He grew up in Warrensville Heights, was a program officer, yeah? Yeah, grew up in Warrensville Heights. Was a program officer with the Cleveland Foundation and with Neighborhood Progress Incorporated, now known as Cleveland Neighborhood Progress. That was a minute ago, but we can still applaud that too. Yeah. Moderating our conversation is a good friend of the City Clubs, Peter Witt. He's senior program officer at the St. Luke's Foundation. Peter's work with the community and on behalf of the community is well known. He was with the city's community relations board for many years, also with the Sisters of Charity Foundation. And if you have our question, a question for our speaker, you can text it to 330-541-5794. That number again is 330-541-5794. Or you can also tweet your question at the City Club, and we'll work it into the second half of the program. Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Marcus Walton and Peter Witt. So I guess it's time. Uh, finally, <laughs> finally, yes. So uh, I have had the privilege of having some conversation with you prior to starting. And I think Dan alluded to your presence in Cleveland, and I want you to shed a little bit more light on that. But before you do that, I really want to start with, with something that you wrote. Um, the title of this was Leading While Black, A Story of Double Consciousness, Decolonization and healing. In this, 
I'm going to take a moment to read this, and, and I want you to process that your evolution was here in Cleveland. You came up in Cleveland. Yes. So I'll start reading, and then I want you to respond to, like, who you are today. Okay. You state, I have been angry for so long that I have lost count of the years. However, admitting to anger is in this way feels risky, involving destructive stereotypes that engender fear and dehumanize black males. A secret that throughout my adolescence lessons and early adult has robbed me of countless opportunities to learn from my emotions and experience the fullness of my own humanity. Yet only through intentional efforts as an adult was I able to develop appreciate, appreciation for my emotional well-being, including allowing myself to explore beauty, dream, experience awe and disappointment, and cry and recover more able to adapt to change. Ooh. So I start with that intentionally, and I'm glad Man. you said woo. Thank you. I, I, I see you and I feel you, and, and, I, and I'm embracing your your ability right in this moment to be in touch with yourself. So yeah. I, I'm, that's, a, that's, a, that's a beautiful thing to be, to be able to be present fully. Someone got some tissue or something. I don't know, I'm good. Yeah. Okay. I, I like, the tears are important. Okay. The tears are important. So, so with that, I really want you to kind of let us know who you are. Let us know who you are from your Cleveland roots. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you. Uh, wow. Uh, I wrote that a while ago. Uh, it's been three years in a role at Grandmakers for Effective Organizations. And um, one of the things leading into that role that was so important is that I'm super clear that I represent more than just me. It's more than just my family. It's more than just about what I can get from this experience. Um, and so I was actually approached by a colleague who runs Nonprofit Quarterly, which is where uh, the story first broke. Um, and it was an intimate opportunity to describe what it's like to be in leadership, especially going into the pandemic, when all of the things were happening that so many of us know about. Um, and it was a rare opportunity. I'd never been asked to share my experience. Uh, it, so one of, the, one of the reasons why I say the, the tears are so important is because uh, what I was describing as uh, being disconnected from my emotions it's something that was socialized. Right? I knew it wasn't natural. Uh, and, and when we talk about philanthropy, philanthropy is a natural act. It's something that is owned by the entire community. Uh, when I think about philanthropy, not its institutionalized formed, that's the thing that we'll talk about a little later in all these foundations, but every culture, which is represented in this room, like part of the tears is the, sh the turnout for this conversation, young people, folks of all different backgrounds in Cleveland, which is a place that is so segregated. Uh, it robbed us all of so many opportunities to establish a level of connection as human beings across cultural backgrounds, right? That, that, that is holding us back, folks. That's holding us back. So, so I, I appreciate your comment, and I'm gonna push a little bit. I, I wanna hear a little bit more about the journey of Cleveland, mm -hmm. um, just for a bit. Take us from Cleveland I know you had a moment at Bowling Green University, but I also <laughs> want to hear a little bit about your experience in Atlanta. Ah, oh, wow. So, so Cleveland is, is um, you know, I like to say I'm, I'm one of the fans that have been historically traumatized by the cardiac kids uh, to this day. <laughs> 
to this day, I'm in front of the TV for, for half of the game, maybe now three quarters of the game before, you know, the thing happens that tends to happen in those games. Uh, but I, I'm also the guy that's always looking for the, the Guardians t-shirt. I was applauding the decision to change the logo, which was always troubling, but still something that represented pride and, and belonging to me in a very special way. Like these complex ways of being represents Cleveland to me. Like I come home, I feel the love of all of the folks who are just working class. Like I even, I remember family members, you don't even know this, but I had a cousin that was like a, a big brother to me who when I told him about college, he said, well, you know, if you wanna waste all of that money finding yourself, then, you know, okay. And I was like, dang, you know, that hurt. He, and, and, but, but I understood, like, he actually cared. He wanted me to be contributing to something that was going to be meaningful and valuable for my, for my edification and not just an exercise that he may have associated with a, an attempt to be other than a part of our culture, being white, right? And, I, and, and I'm coming back to this because the complexity around these, these constructs mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of identity, these political and social constructs that aren't even real, but historically have been created to separate the majority of, of, uh, for, of us from access to resources and opportunity and to hoard power amongst a small few, yes. a small few, a few that's so small, even folks that may look or, or come from similar backgrounds don't have access to that power. So this is about power, Peter. So let me, let, me, let me just go here. So Cleveland mm -hmm. was the place where I first saw this play out. Mm -hmm. But it's the place that I love. It, it, even when I come back here, I'm, I'm, I hope you hear the kind of the, the dual mm -hmm. consciousness that I described there. Mm -hmm. Because the same place that I love so much, the same people who pour so much into me, in the early 70s when we still had that vibrant economy and you can graduate from high school and work in a factory and raise a family and buy a home. I watched that deteriorate over the course of my matriculation through college and beyond. And so as I was going up, I was watching the city decay. It broke my heart. That's why I said the tears The tears are important because I've been wanting to cry it for a long time. A long time. There's too much greatness here that is untapped and uncultivated. And so, and so discovering that, like what can I do with this heartbreak? How do I overcome this heartbreak? Because I've seen people go in a different direction who've had these same feelings. I've seen, I've had friends who were in school doing things that ultimately took them out of a productive pathway of society altogether as students. And so the national level allows me to do this, to show up on behalf of these communities, as a part of these communities. And understand, guess what? I've learned over the course of 15 years of national work that there's a Cleveland in every state. And there are rural populations now, and they get mischaracterized in so many different ways who feel like they, they too have been overlooked. And they don't look like me, but they feel me. 
I talk to them. I have conversations with foundation presidents. I have conversations with city, with grandmothers in communities, with students in different cities. They have the same story. And the way that it happens is through the same uh, way of manufacturing policies, confusing ways of identity that suggest to us and make us believe that we operate with separate fates. We do not. There is one race, the human race, and a spectrum of amazing and beautiful cultures across that race. So I'm gonna stop you and let's give them a round of applause. Because as you can see, this is not just really about work. This is about life for you. Indeed. And, and I want to go back to a point and then I want to move from there to more about the organization. But I sure. do briefly want you to tell me, what did you see in Atlanta mm -hmm. that shaped your outlook as yeah. you do your work today? Yeah, thank you. Uh, so the, 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 that process that I just described, and it was also supported through... Um, through uh, 10, 12 years that I spent at, at the Association of Black Foundation Executives, which, which I left the Cleveland Foundation and Neighborhood Progress to go and be a, 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 president, a director of programs. The thing that I had never experienced here, all, you know, all of the heartbreak, all of the curiosity and the separation, I never experienced a thriving population of African-American professionals. I just had it. I knew we existed. I, I met individuals, but I had never just been among, in a space where I could just walk in and see the variety of folks, whether it was working class, whether it was running an organization, uh, you name it. Atlanta offered it. And, and because I was so hungry for that experience, I went to graduate school there. I chose Georgia State as the school that I would practice in. I knew from some lessons that I learned in undergrad at Bowling Green that I needed work experience. I got the educational part because everyone said, like, get your education, get your education, get your education. Historically, for those of you who may or may not know, in African-American communities, education has long been the way out. Right? And so I was like, okay, I know I need to do that. And I went and I wasn't prepared to be intentional about how to use that education. And so Atlanta also offered internships. So I worked for uh, uh, Representative Cynthia McKinney as a congresswoman who was a black congresswoman in the 14th district in Atlanta. Right? I worked with a nonprofit uh, in Atlanta. I also got a chance to operate with the mayor's office in Atlanta, with the state assembly in Atlanta. It gave me that full spectrum experience, all African-American, in a way that I, would never be possible in so many other places. And it made it a thing that I could then move beyond. It set a new standard for me, Peter. So I, I appreciate the context of your journey, mm -hmm. meaning that you juxtapose Cleveland and Atlanta you have what I would call the, the, the true, this black experience. Mm -hmm. But I want to read some statistics. Mm -hmm. So the Council on Foundation, moving us into philanthropy, right, mm -hmm. speaks to the fact that the demographics of most philanthropic organizations have a board chair that's 95% white. Executives are white. Executive staff, 83% white. Staff, 73% white. Program officer, 66% white. And grant managers, 61% white. Mm -hmm. 
so you juxtapose your black experience. Mm -hmm. You come into GEO, mm -hmm. right? And your organization's mission statement mm -hmm. is a community, GEO is a community of funders committed to transforming philanthropic culture and practice by connecting members to the resources and relationships needed to support thriving nonprofit communities. Mm -hmm. Nonprofits and communities. So I, I wanna know how does this Marcus, and I'm gonna say homegrown from Cleveland, mm -hmm. transition to Atlanta, mm -hmm. finds himself leading the organization, but a population that is primarily white. Mm -hmm. How do you make it happen? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you, and, and I hope other people are wondering that too. I don't want <laughs> uh, this is so important, uh, and, and I'm, I'm grateful. Usually I, I start with gratitude. Actually, I did. I went to each of the tables thanking you all for coming out. Like That's an intentional practice of uh, establishing a way of being mm -hmm. with each other mm -hmm. that is generative, mm -hmm. that brings forward the best, that creates the conditions that are conducive to thriving, thriving being operating from the fullest expression of our common humanity, right? And so I learned that from having first this foundation, like no pun intended, the Cleveland Foundation. <laughs> that, be, that was the, the base. That was the uh, cornerstone, if you will. Atlanta built something uh, on top of that. It offered more scaffolding for a fuller experience. It allowed me to heal. It allowed me to remove any vestiges of inferiority that may have been lingering mm. from the experience that was my foundation. So translate that into working with a population mm -hmm. when you're trying to change philanthropy that's primarily why. Yeah, so one is while moving from the Cleveland Foundation experience into the Association of Black Foundation Executives, around 2010, I started to do racial equity work. And this thing called racial equity suggested, and this was uh, Dr. John Powell was at the Kerwin Institute at the time, now at uh, Berkeley mm -hmm. with the Othering and Belonging Institute. What they were saying is that groups are situated differently in society, in communities, mm -hmm. in, within the same neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This felt familiar, this felt like home. Like, oh yeah, we are, we are in the same city, but our experiences are different, so both can happen at the same time. Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. And then he said these, these constructs that I just described, these ways of identifying that are not real but have been created, uh, can be used to understand how different groups are are faring, are experiencing a particular quality of life. And so by, by looking at groups according to those categories, but not confusing that we are actually different, we can then be intentional and targeted with our investments. Mm -hmm. And so when I practiced this, I saw the mastery, the brilliance of what was what's called targeted universalism, right? That we have limited resources at any particular point in time, but by focusing on the root cause of these disparities that play out in different ways across our communities, we can start to get to the thing that's causing, the conditions that are actually creating these negative experiences, even for some people, even if they're living next to others who may experience a different level of thriving. 
right? It made it to where I'm not crazy. Mm -hmm. I mean, to make it very plain, mm -hmm. like, oh my goodness, this is, this is a, a something that is helping, happening beyond an individualized experience. It's not about whether this person is racist or not. It's about what are the policy decisions that have been made over time that have created conditions in our communities that are solid and fixed and that will create the same results over and over again until we replace those policies with different ones that are more affirming. So and so let me, let me just close out. Mm -hmm. And so I found out from these national conversations, these one-on-one -on -one conversations with leaders across all these different backgrounds, that other people think like that too. Mm. That we actually have more in common than the thoughts and experiences that separate us, that are different. I gotta ask a question. When you say other people, I because this kind of this yeah. conversation is rooted in a little yeah. bit of so let's talk about this. I'm, I'm talking about power. Okay, so okay, this, yeah, this, power is more significant than the value of a race identity. Race identity is all is small. It's old. Mm -hmm. It's passe. It serves us all to eliminate those, except for disaggregating our data and understanding how different communities are faring. But what really serves us is to think about what's our proximity to decision making that influences our quality of life directly, i.e. our power. So philanthropy, institutional philanthropy is a practice of power, sharing power, wielding power or building power. So on that note, I got to jump in here, y'all. <laughs> Do y'all uh, love this guy? I love, I love this conversation. Right. So, so I, because this is an important thing that we know in philanthropy. It's happened in Cleveland. It's happened across the nation. And that's the context of competitiveness and collaborativeness. Ah, yes. So when we think about philanthropic organizations, we often think about who's doing what and why. I want you to speak to this context of what you just talked about. You start sharing power, wielding power, and sharing power. Yes. How do you do that in a competitive spirit which often happens within philanthropy. So you just talked about GEO as a community of funders committed to transforming philanthropic culture. The reason we focus on culture is because strategies are already baked in with bias, right? The, what, culture is defined as our thoughts, our, our behaviors, uh, the rituals, our, the way that we uh, acknowledge a higher power, uh, all of those things, the way that we think, the things that shape our experience as individuals in communities are, are described in culture, right? And so by going a little upstream mm -hmm. and it, examining the experiences and the beliefs that influence our, if you will, our mental models, we then can go into a strategy experience without those biases. We can check for biases before we start to talk about how we're gonna allocate resources. A colleague of mine said, as a matter of fact, uh, Billy Shore with Share Our Strength, it's a national uh, hunger uh, elimination um, outfit. He says, they believe from their work with hunger over the course of uh, several decades that it's not our, our issue as a society is not a lack of financial resources. It's a broken distribution system. Right? The distribution, so by going upstream and focusing mm -hmm. on culture, mm -hmm. we're all about looking at the distribution system and making sure that colleagues who are doing different aspects of work across different sectors, we need corporations, public sector, nonprofits, all working together with those in the community, driving advocacy, 
to be collaborative. That's the culture that serves us as a society that is increasingly multicultural and simultaneously pluralistic, meaning that we come from more conservative and progressive points of view, even if we have a shared vision that something has to change. It sounds like a next mayor somewhere, right? <laughs> <laughs> So I, oh my goodness, so Please, I, don't do that no, to no, me. No, no, I won't do it to you. I want to hold on to All respect to Mr. Bid. Right, right. And congratulations. <laughs> I want to hold on to, to a word, culture. Yes. And when we think about Cleveland, Ohio, bringing the texture here and the fabric to Cleveland, you know, the other in Belonging Institute, you referenced Don Powell, mm -hmm. says from the most to the least segregated cities, Cleveland ranks six most segregated mm -hmm. out of 113. Mm -hmm. So historically, we know that redlining and other historical policies yeah, all these practices. has sustained this segregation. Reinforced it and caused it. I, I want to go but, causal. But before you, before causal. you do that, before you do that, I want us to go inside a minute. Okay. And here's why. When we think about setting culture inside philanthropy mm -hmm. and philanthropy moving forward in today's time, understanding that there's been infractions and racial equity is at the height of its implementation ever. That's how, right. how do you manage the value system inside out? How do you manage the value system board members, mm -hmm. staff saying, mm -hmm. hey, we want to do this, but then there's no traction that translates to external work? Yeah. Any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, a, a few thoughts. Uh, and, and my promise is that I'm only sharing experience. When I tell you something that's my opinion, I'll, I'll qualify that first. So I'm sharing observations, patterns, trends from national work over the course of almost 20 years. First thing is that uh, the thing that we're talking about here is being more relational okay. in how we approach our work. Mm -hmm. Historically, institutional philanthropy as well as institutions in Western society, American institutional practice and culture has been driven by efficiency. Right? Any, anyone who majors in something like uh, public administration or business will tell you efficiency is how we define success. But that's when it comes to widgets and profit. When it comes to people, effectiveness is what drives success. Mm -hmm. And that's the shift that has been happening in philanthropy over the course of a, a few decades. But the arc of time is long. And we haven't adjusted in terms of our institutional practice. We still operate in institutional philanthropy in terms of a year-long or a two- or three-year-long grant-making cycles. But that's an example of a policy or a structure that's counterproductive to reinforcing the kind of connection that is reinforced through a relational way of doing our work. Okay. Right? And so if you focus on efficiency, you get a competitive space, right? It breeds competition. We were all socialized to be competitive. That's why we struggle so much when we try to be collaborative because we don't want to change. We want the other thing to change. We want that to change. We want y'all to change. <laughs> I have to be open to allowing myself to be transformed by the transformation process. Right. Mm. We all have to be open and vulnerable to change. This is why the tears were so important, why modeling this is so important. We have an opportunity right now to normalize this way of being. As the president of GEO, I can get into more spaces more often and be this way, inviting others to join me and the others of us who care about collaboration. 
about cultivating our collective genius, about creating inclusive spaces where people feel whole and can express themselves fully. We can realize something for this nation that has never been fulfilled through the actualization of our constitution. So I want to I want to push on this a bit. Um, I, okay, we've got yeah, five minutes. Yeah, I know we're gonna time flies. That's right. I told them we got a few time. more questions and we'll be transitioning <laughs> to the audience shortly. Yes. All right. I get, get one ready. or two. I see the audience. I see everybody so, leaning forward. I, I think this is. I think because I'm sure this audience have a number of questions. I, For sure. I'm curious about the way you speak about relationships, and. Mm -hmm. I've heard you talk about numbers. I've heard this mm -hmm. magic number of 30, but I don't want you to go there yet. Mm -hmm. You may answer that later. Mm -hmm. I want you to talk about <laughs> this. If I am the white male or white female in leadership, because you seem to understand the landscape of Let's the say white, white identified, because we're still figuring out how okay. to call ourselves in this time of change. Okay, All I right. would go with that. White identifier. Mm -hmm. I am a white identifier. My question to you is, would the narrative be different? And if so, why? be different for in terms of speaking to me what should i do as a white identifier to be relational to those oh, in the space oh i got you yeah well, so let me let me start with this with the person and you you asked this a little bit mm -hmm. uh one of the things that and, and i have colleagues in the space i love this i love that jennifer roller is in this room and oh oh my good keisha is here there's a way that i interact with each person in the in the form of speaking to the true self Right? So mm -hmm. I move beyond what is presenting to me, a gender, an age, mm -hmm. and I try to get to like, what is this, what do I feel from this person? What do they care most about? That's how I allow them permission to identify through the experience of our connection. And so the connection is real, and I just uh, open myself up to responding to that. And so when I'm talking to Rich Besser, he gave me permission to use his name. When I'm talking to Rich Besser, who's the president <laughs> of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, mm -hmm. or Chris Cardona at the Ford Foundation, like these are people that we have on our calendar to connect every six weeks offline to yeah. just connect, to say, hey, here's my observations. What's going on with you? How are you feeling? What's going on with you? Like you talk about some tears yes. or like it happens offline no one would have known about it if it didn't come forward through this conversation but those are examples those the two men i named are from the most opposite backgrounds that you can imagine uh, uh, uh md who you probably saw on cnn during the pandemic talking about uh covid and a different that's rich bezer mm -hmm. and chris cardona uh, uh a man male of latino descent who through the Ford Foundation does a lot of work in justice spaces and with, within uh, different types of intermediary and movement-focused institutions. And so those are just two examples, but the variety, the, the majority of my time, if I look at how I spend my time, it is creating spaces for leaders who are in these complex dynamics, grappling with, holding the two polarities that I described about, mm -hmm. I create space for them to sit that down and for us to just be with each other, to heal, mm -hmm. to recover, mm -hmm. to so, recharge and then get back in the game because we can't stop at recovery. Oh, okay, I feel good. It's not about comfort. It's about staying in the game over the long arc of time that Dr. King described that mor the moral arc leans to, right, toward justice. Yeah. So I want to, this is my final question. Yes, sir. It's just, I've been cued to make this my final question. And so, um, <laughs> and this is Cleveland specific. 
particularly around philanthropy. Mm-hmm. When we think about Cleveland, we think about corporate philanthropy. Yeah. We think about private philanthropy, family foundations, and then we have a community foundation, all mm. of which have a different way. That's a lot of different structures. Exactly. Indeed. And so to me, uh, when, you, when you talk about the complexity, which you just referenced in terms of just pure relationships, mm-hmm. help me understand how one would navigate donors who hey, have a, maybe a different view of what their foundation is going when it comes to equity mm-hmm. as compared to fri- a private foundation or a family foundation who may say, listen, I, I do want to donate to a very conservative point of view because it's a family foundation. Those are complexities that people are working with in those constru- constructs. Yeah. How do you manage that? Yeah, I, I, it's, a, it's a great question. It, and it is complex, right? Again, no pun intended. The first thing that's important to know is that we can't do it alone. We cannot change these systems and structures independently in isolation of our colleagues, right? And so as GEO, as an organization whose role is to support and serve philanthropic practice Mm -hmm. as a sector, Mm -hmm. we make sure that we connect with our colleagues who work with family foundations, NCRP. We make sure that we work with our colleagues, uh, 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 NCFP. We make sure that our colleagues who are watchdog organizations, independent sector, Council on Foundations, Mm -hmm. uh, CEP, the Center of Effective Philanthropy. So it's a collaborative effort in order for this thing to work. The individual who has the question sometimes doesn't get served exclusively through GEO. We become an entry point into a series of relationships and complex networks working together toward effective grant making practice. Effectiveness being defined by the folks who are sitting in these seats, not by us. And it, it takes time. We have, when you talked about the 30, yes. what, I, what I refer to in 30s is the amount of years that I'm willing to take the incremental steps to reverse the 300 years of discrimination, racism, sexism, xenophobia, and all the other isms that are a result of these causal factors associated with um, discriminatory policymaking. This country has a problem that can be fixed. But the pro- part of the problem is we don't know that we are the answers to the damn problem. Yeah, all right. Thank you. So at this point in time, we're gonna take questions. You'll edit that last part out? No, I'm not editing anything. We will edit nothing here. This is free speech on the record, and we are deeply grateful, Marcus and Peter. Thank you. This has been a tremendous conversation thus far. We look forward to the what happens next. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here, and we're about to begin the audience Q&A. As you know, we're joined by Marcus Walton, President and CEO of Grantmakers for Effective Organizations, in conversation with Peter Witt of the St. Luke's Foundation. I want to just reiterate something, too, as we get into the Q&A. Marcus had asked me that, uh, that I ask you all to be unafraid and courageous in the questions that you pose to him today. Now, we always hope that you'll do that, but I wanted to make a special mention of that today and kind of call you in to be a part of this conversation. We do welcome questions from everyone, whether you're in the room or watching on the live stream. If you want to tweet us a question, you can tweet at the City Club and we'll work it in. If you want to text a question, the number is 330-541-5794. We also have microphones over there and over there, and we are ready for our first question. (laughs) Good afternoon. We have a text question. GEO is a collaboration of 6,000 philanthropic orgs. 
Can you point to some of the more impactful changes in culture that have come from this cohort? Yeah, sure. And, and uh, first, you know, the number, the number matters, but, you know, in some ways it doesn't. The, the commitment to culture, to change, to transformation is really important. Um, and so some examples of this are, if, if for, think, about, think about three years ago, prior to uh, the pandemic, to the tragic incident, the, the, the violence. And, and on a national scene, everyone's like, oh, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, but I know what was happening here. I was paying attention to that too. So think about the things, the, the incidents of violence that were happening that was just uh, generating national and global outrage. What we've seen in terms of transformation is um, an openness toward making racial equity central to institutional philanthropic dialogue and investment. All of a sudden, we went from making the case for equity, which I described as identifying groups that are situated differently and making sure that they get the types of resources at the levels that are required to support a high quality of life. Regardless of, it's not about the same, it's about being responsive and targeted. That's happening more now. And it's, it's too many organizations to name. I, I talked about Ford and I talked about Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. They represent amazing examples of how that's happening. But I really encourage people to really look deeper into uh, some of these groups. The last thing I'll say is that um, there's also a conversation that is emerging around trust-based philanthropy. Uh, anyone heard about trust-based, right? Trust-based philanthropy is what I just described up here. These are just uh, uh, applications of the principles. I gave you the principles without the framework. The framework makes it easier for you to get inside of your offices, inside of your teams, sit at your desk, and do the thing in ways that other people have tried. But I actually encourage you all who are practicing grant making to not restrict yourself to what works elsewhere. The conditions are always slightly different. But instead, connect with the individuals. Focus on the people. At the core of philanthropy is love of humanity. We are the institutional practice of creating conditions for thriving of all people. And so strategy, yeah. But Peter Drucker said culture is strategy and process for breakfast and lunch. So let's focus on culture because it is the most significant and the most significant act that we can commit to is creating connection, prioritizing the connection that we have with other people who are involved in this process of trying to create thriving conditions within our communities. So you talked about connecting to people and I just have one question. Do you mean those who are most impacted by the issues or just people in general? I mean I just, the I entire, the, this room. Mm -hmm. We should have young people and the con conceptualization conversations for our work inside of our institutions. We should have people who have been anchors. You know, my grandmother, Miss West, who, who oversaw the community garden behind her house, she should be a part of these conversations. We should have the folks who work inside of the institution as a part of these conversations. We should in invite as many people as we can from the public and private sector to also be part of these conversations because institutional philanthropy alone does not have the largest amount of financial resources to resolve these issues. The money is in the public and private sector. And the distribution channels are so confounded that the 
enough resources don't reach the places where they're needed the most. Thank you. How can I become a grant writer? Hmm. Uh, so, you know, one of, the, one of the interesting things about philanthropy, institutional philanthropy, is that there was no clear pathway to do it. Like, you just kind of end up there. <laughs> And this was for the longest time. You ask anyone, right? I see hands going on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you ask anyone who, up until 2000, who, was, who served in a foundation, if you ask them, how did you arrive here? They would say, like, oh, my goodness. It was the most random thing. Guess what? Here's my story, right? And so, but now there are institutes of philanthropy. So Indiana has one. Uh, there's, there's several. Uh, University of Arkansas has a community. Um, a community philanthropy uh, major. I would not recommend that though. You didn't ask this, but I'm gonna offer you this because uh, the most effective practitioners that I've met, I don't know if y'all ever heard of Tim Tramble. He runs the, oh yeah, okay, I wasn't joking. <laughs> uh, who runs the St. Luke's Foundation. This man was a practitioner in community for decades, more than one, is that right? at least two decades working in community, right? The practitioners. I was an organizer in the South Bronx. I used to knock on doors in the South Bronx, in projects, in people's homes, inside these little tiny schools, elementary schools, to support um, uh, an, an equitable distribution of resources. That has served me the most as a grantmaker today, those experiences. My Keisha, my organizing friends, we still are in organizing conversations. And so I would say get the experience you need and then seek the opportunities. Once you feel like you have learned something, maybe even mastered it, 10,000 hours of practice, right? Malcolm Gladwell, <laughs> develop mastery, and then you become undeniable for folks who are looking for strong leaders. Thank you so much for your question. Thank you for all your comments, and including that culture eats strategy for lunch. My question is about the term and construct of quote-unquote philanthropy. I've heard, and in fact it was at a discussion here at the City Club, that it's a construct that doesn't resonate with people of color, that as you talk about power and white privilege, that that's what it connotes. Would you comment, please? Yeah, yeah, let's get right to it, and thank you. And, and I know, Peter, we were looking forward to getting here. Right? Let me make it very clear. And again, this is my point of view based upon my experience, the relationships that I have formed, not my opinion. This conversation is about whiteness, not white people. Whiteness, a mindset, a way that we have all been socialized into believing that there's not enough for us all, and so I better get mine and take care of mine first. And even if that means at the exclusion of others. Whiteness, and whiteness is wrong too. Right? There's a whole practice of eugenics that has historically been created to justify superiority according to a hierarchy of human value that is just fallacious. It is not real, right? What I just described is what a small group of folks who had organizational power, right, governments early on in history, who wanted to retain that power. Early industrialists 
who were exploitative across every community that's represented in this room and kept us separate so we wouldn't organize, come together and demand a just and equitable treatment. It happened through unions historically. There's all kinds of strategies that have been used uh, to reverse that. But this, is, this remains the challenge today. Whiteness is a construct. It is not real. And yet it confounds us in every way, in every way. Sometimes to where it's only certain groups of us sitting at a table, right? Even today. And I'm not, say, I'm not saying this as an assessment on whether you are right or wrong, your value. I'm saying it doesn't serve us. This is something that we can control. There's so many things that we can't control. This one we can. And so it, does that mean that a, a, there's not a privilege associated with whiteness? Absolutely. There are groups of people just by identity, by how we appear, have benefited from this thing called white privilege. And yet it's not about the individual being racist or not. It's about the power of identity and how this construct has been wielded and continues to be wielded even to this day, especially in this city, especially in this state, which we see every four years or so, right, around national, at all eyes on Ohio. And it is done across racial lines. We are being played. And this nation is too great. Let me, let me say this. In the same way that you saw those tears, I want you to hear this declaration from the same black male. And that black means with an ancestry that goes back to another continent that oversaw millennial civilizations that lasted thousands of years. I had to break through these little narrow construct of America, which is a baby relative to other civilizations to realize the greatness that I'm actually tapped into and that you all belong to also. Every one of us can do that if we extend beyond the constraints that our socialization keeps us trapped in. Right? We can do this, we, but we have to get to know each other and we have to grapple, we have to recover, we are traumatized. It's communities that are so traumatized they don't believe certain things are possible. All the more reason for us to be out in front like this and be real and welcoming and allow the challenges to come and stay in the relationship to reinforce the level of connection that liberates us all. How does philanthropy give resources to invest in our own communities? Yeah, it starts with all of us participating. Right. Well, you accepting the invitation, coming to things like this, making sure that afterwards you get to meet some of the folks. They probably have suits on right now. Right. <laughs> get to know them and, and ask them to be invited, like get their newsletter and, and come to some of those events. I'm going to be on my end making sure that they're inviting folks like you, young people, into the different types of conversations that take place that influence your community. That gives you the entry point into it, and then you just remain connected. You invite other folks like you who are interested in it, and you ask us for help, right? I'll make sure, I, I, I make sure my information 
is given, and any one of you can contact me, and, and we can stay in relationship. I hope you all heard today, relationship, 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 connection, connection, connection. It starts with us being available for each other and unconditionally, unconditionally supportive of each other's well-being and expression. Thank you. Hey there. Hi. You've been over there. I've been hearing you. You've been getting me through this. Thank you. <laughs> you too. You too over there, Miss Pat. I think that's your day. Yeah. Thank you. I'm feeling you. This is what happens at um, home. This my is, walk. This is what it means. Thank you. I love um, y'all. But my question to you is focusing on culture and knowing of Cleveland's culture through experience mm -hmm. as a resident as well as foundation and work. What recommendations do you have for us and the foundations to make the necessary change? Oof. Mm. Okay. I guess we just kind of end with, with, with the tough one, right? With love. We all have a role. One of the things that I've learned, and so I've been a, uh, an executive coach since uh, 2008, and I did it in order to heal from all of those things, those forms of trauma that I described that I went through as a result of being here and seeing things that felt like they were missing. Um, they helped me understand the patterns that I, that I was responding to, believing that certain possibilities were available to me and certain ones weren't. We all have a role in imagining or reimagining what's possible for this city this state and this nation. We all have a role and we can't do it alone. This is what my experience has shown. You can't do it alone. So I have to make promises to someone in this world in order to be held accountable, right? So that I follow through and build trust. Without promises, we have no conditions for building trust where it doesn't currently exist. Trust is built when I say I'm gonna do something and I follow through, you say, oh, okay, that was cool. Let's do it again, and I do it again, right? And, right? and I ask you for something, and then I say, ah, okay, we, we established something here. I can rely on Marcus to produce a certain set of results and responses to my request and vice versa. And so I wonder, I, I'm curious, what's your name? Robin, I'm curious what promises you can invite people into relationship with you to make as a binding agreement for building trust. And I'm curious about everyone else in this room. What promises haven't been made? What invitations into relationships have we not made that you could make leaving from here today and starting from there and revisiting that and bringing those relationships from individually held to collectively and community held over the course of time. Staying in the thing is important, just like a marriage. It doesn't just work on its own, right? I don't think anyone intentionally does it just for a decade or so. And then like, <laughs> and so we have to do the work of maintaining relationships, but we all know how to do it. And that's why I believe it's possible. Right, thank, thank you. you. And as, as we come up with the last question, um, I, I, I implied something here that I wanna name, which is hope. 
hope is so critical to our communities. I'm starting to experience it as uh, the fuel that guides everything that we just talked about, those relationships. Well, we are intentional about it. If you think about to what end are we doing all of this, it's to reinforce and cultivate hope amongst people who have a variety of experiences that suggest they shouldn't have it. I am so um, excited and grateful and thankful for this platform. I, I'm excited um, for your passion that you show, you know, Thank on stage you. for everyone to see. Thank and you. one of the things that, you know, Dan mentioned and you talked about and Peter mentioned, you know, was this idea of being courageous. And every time I go to speak, I always say, oh, gosh, you know, you, you put yourself <laughs> out there. It's about being courageous. Yeah. But since Robin talked about, you know, steps that our community can take, I'll say that there's funders in this room. And you all know who you are. We have a platform in place for a change. We just need to move the frequency of how we convene to make that work happen. So I just want to know what, what advice can you offer professionals that are sitting behind, you know, in their seats and they hold the title program managers or VP, you know, all these different things. How can they be courageous in their professional spaces to speak on things that we know just need to change flat out? Because that's scary when it's your everyday work. So that, I think that's my question is, you know, how can we help lift them so they can speak out on the things that they know are just absolutely mm -hmm. wrong. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Wow. Beautiful. 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 So, okay, I'm going to try to do this in 90 seconds. This, this is going to be, no, this is a great closeout question. Um, the coach in me wants to say, I wonder what you think we can do. Because I heard answers inside of your question, right? And so what's holding you back from saying the thing? Here's one. Say it. Name the elephants in the room. Leaders, if y'all are thinking about, like, what's required of leaders for these moments of transformation, I hope I just showed you a few things. One is to make yourself vulnerable and accessible. All of this separation, being the person that's exceptional, it's not serving us, right? All that does is create and reinforce more separation. I am not exceptional. I've been through a whole lot and I'm committed to even more. And so outdo me is one of the things. Last longer or, or join me, join me, take up the mantle. See if this is real. Don't take my word on it, but test it out for yourself. That's one. Two, adopt a mindset that practice leads to mastery. Again, I'm just reinforcing the same thing that I just said. There's nothing exceptional about what I've just described. It's just that I've been practicing longer. I'm more practiced than you. And so I, you can hold me to a different standard, and it's okay. Again, leaders of transformation are allow and welcome being held to a higher standard. There's certain things you won't understand until you get more practice in, and that's okay. That's okay. I'm going to be accused of things that are not accurate, and that are counter to my character. And you know what? That's a part of the journey, right? And it's unfortunate and it breaks my heart. So name the heartbreak, leaders of contemporary transformative change. Let people see you hurt a little bit so that we can also welcome other folks to be human beings in these spaces that we're transforming together. Uh, last thing I'll say is courageous. Let's really think about language. 
Uh, we talked about racial constructs. We talked about our, com our common humanity. We talked about um, uh, practice leading to mastery. We talked about what's transformational. We talked about institutional philanthropy. We defined uh, philanthropy as a practice that is shared by all people. We talked about greatness and thriving as an expression of a, our fullest way of being human. That is something that we can all hold together and making promises to each other, creating space to work it out. Because let me just define one more thing as we close, which is perfection. I challenge you all to consider that we have gotten perfection as a definition all wrong. We believe that it is the absence of flaws. It's the absence of struggle. It's the absence of discomfort. It's the absence of tension. My experience is that thriving encompasses all of that and creates more space for more, for more. And perfection is being available and, and, uh, and being, being able to continually change, to continually experience heartbreak and disappointment and joy and happiness. And look, joy is always present and if we're intentional, we can bring that forward because no one wants to join something that is miserable, right, <laughs> and painful. <laughs> so there we go. Thank you so much. <laughs>
and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland, Incorporated.